0: This is Ashley at Recovery Radio, and today I'd like to talk to you about how important it is to keep the message of hope flowing. Did you know that some of our listeners are on ships at sea? That's right, people in the Navy or Merchant Marine out to sea and away from their meetings for months at a time. They write to us and express their gratitude for Recovery Radio's ability to provide solution and comfort in their times of isolation. The hope we provide them becomes their life jacket, protecting them from a spiritual drowning during difficult passages. A thin read indeed, but a powerful one. Please help us keep this resource afloat by donating to our cause today. Just go to recoveryradio.net and click the donate button. Good morning, everybody. My name is Peggy. Hi, Peggy. Excuse me, I had to pick up my clinic. I may cry. It's because the program of Al-Anon works, and I choose to work the 12 steps in my life on a daily basis that I've been restored to sanity one day at a time. And thus far, that journey has brought me 11 years and five days. My anniversary was Monday, June the 9th. And I'm glad to be here, and before God kicks in, because he's going to take over here in a minute. <clears throat> and I don't know what message he's got for you this morning or who he's going to speak to, but he's in charge, so blame him, don't blame me. <laughs> but before he does take over this morning, I do want to thank the whoever was responsible for inviting us up here. It's a beautiful, beautiful place, and I wasn't supposed to... Uh, tell the other speakers, but the suite that they had reserved for us, Debbie, was just wonderful. And, and everybody has been so friendly, and Bob is just a love, you know, I just fell in love with him. I I was so glad he was driving. You know, God was in charge yesterday, too, because he and Steve both picked us up, Steve being one of those. <laughs> And I knew God was in charge because I was starving to death, had not eaten all day. And it was three o'clock or so when we got into Dulles. And I let it be known quickly that I was hungry. And then we got into traffic. And I thought we never was going to get here. And they done told me that I wasn't going to get to eat till we got here. I was getting a little resentful. But Bob, being the good, perceptive Al-Anon that he was, picked up on that pretty quick. So I got to stop down at the Cracker Barrel and eat before we ever got here. So everything worked out okay. But I told Steve this morning I certainly was glad that Bob was driving, because I don't think he would have been quite as perceptive. And I would have probably had to uh, really exert my Al-Anon privileges, you know. But anyway, it worked out, and they've both been wonderful to us, and and we just appreciate the hospitality so much. A uh, couple of things I want to tell you before before I forget or get or run out of time, and that is, that is that I am a member of the Horn Lake Allenon group in Horn Lake, Mississippi. It's not my first home group; it may not be my last, but that's where I am right now, and I am an active member of that group. I currently serve as the treasurer of our group, and I also chair a meeting. We meet six nights a week, and I don't go six nights a week, but I do chair a meeting on Saturday night uh, from the book, From Survival to Recovery, uh, which has just been a tremendous blessing in my life. I also was involved in service work for quite a while, and I, and I got out of it, and now I'm back in it again a little bit. I went to my first uh, convention meeting. We're having a Tennessee State Convention next year, and they <clears throat> asked me to be the Speaker Chairman, pick speakers, and I went to my first meeting the other day and uh, stayed there two hours and don't know what we accomplished, and then I remembered why I got out of service work. <laughs> I'm still not well enough that this organization don't just drive me totally nuts. But I guess it's going to be a good lesson for me, so I'll, uh, I'm going to hang in there and do what I'm supposed to do is asked to do it, and I made a commitment to do it, and I will keep that commitment to do it. Um, I'm a country girl, born and raised in southeast Arkansas. Most of you probably don't even know where that is. But we're famous for a couple of things down there. It's a big farming country. My father was a farmer. We raised rice, soybeans, and cotton and mosquitoes as big as helicopters. (laughs) And I hope you don't know what they are up here. Because I promised God a long time ago, if he ever let me get out of there, I would not go back. And I don't very often, except to visit my mother and two sisters who still live there. And I know today that things are a matter of perception, because I have two younger sisters. I was talking to one of them recently about our childhood, and she looked at me like I was just plain nuts. Like, did you grow up in the same family I did? So that told me that everything that I'm going to tell you today is strictly My perception of what was going on in my family and with me back during that time. But I never felt like I really belonged anywhere. I felt lesser than and never good enough for any situation. We had what I suppose is probably a a very normal childhood. My father didn't drink. I didn't know anything about drinking. Um... We went to church every time the doors was open. I heard Ernie say that last night. I thought, oh, there's another one. By the way, Ernie, if you're here today, uh, I was very relieved to know that you know where your help comes from. I uh, heard him say something about uh, Al-Anon being the source of his uh, recovery in some manner or another last night. And I thought that was good. And Debbie, honey, there's just one thing I can say to you. You just give up too easy. That's all. But I'm just sorry I didn't get to hear all of the speakers, but I understand we're going to get a set of takes, and I'm grateful for that, because I always enjoy listening to to all of the other speakers. But I was working and just couldn't get off, so that's the reason I didn't get here any earlier. But this childhood of mine was just very normal, I guess. From what my sisters tell me, it was just very normal. We had a very loving home. And, and everything was okay, but I just didn't feel like I belonged there. I asked my mother last time I saw her, I said, are you sure I'm not adopted? <laughs> she assured me that I was not. But as I said, I just never felt like I belonged there. I just felt lesser than. Even when I went to high school, I always felt very inferior to the whole world, everybody around me, just never felt good. And early on, I remember having this hole in my gut started little, and then it became an all-consuming thing. There was one thing about my childhood that I can remember that was very, very, very happy for me. And that was in this church where we went to, and it was a little country church. And we were there every time the doors opened, my father being the deacon. And every summer we had this singing school. And this is when the the instructor would come in from Little Rock, which was 90 miles away, every night. And for a whole week, he would teach us how to read and sing from shaped notes. At the end of one of those sessions, he chose three people from the group to form a trio. And those three people were me and my two sisters. He did not know at the time that we were sisters, but that began what was a very, very joyful part of my life. We traveled and sang gospel music for... Uh, several years uh, locally, never on a national level but locally we did and I thoroughly enjoyed that because you see when I was up singing and performing I felt something wonderful I just felt exhilarated now I don't know if you know in Maryland what gospel singing is or not I don't know if you all have it up here but it's not your typical sacred hymns that you find in a lot of churches I'm talking about the kind of of music that you can stomp your feet to and clap your hands and just have a good old time and beat a tambourine to death and that was what I enjoyed I enjoyed the exhilaration that that provided but when I got down off of the stage and sat down you know the old part of me came back and the whole opened back up and I felt empty and I felt alone When I was 17 years old, I discovered love in the back seat of a 57 Ford. <laughs> Some of you did too, I guess. <laughs> but being the honest program that Alanon is, I must tell you that it was not love; it was lust. And <clears throat> when you grew up like I grew up with the family I grew up in. Uh, with the moral standards that were set for me, there's not but one way that you can uh, rectify that sin, and that is to get married, and that's exactly what I did before anybody found out. And some thirteen months later, that marriage produced a little girl. But all along, during that seven-year marriage, the hole in my gut kept getting bigger, and after a while, I decided I know what will fix the hole in my gut. I just missed out on a lot of my childhood and my growing up. And I just believe that if I get rid of this husband and this child and get over on the other side where the grass is greener, everything's going to be okay. And that is exactly what I did, and I'm certainly not proud of that today, but uh that's the way it is. That's the way it was for me, and so I must tell you the truth. I have... Um, as I said, two sisters, and I, one of them could probably qualify for this program as well as I do, but that's my opinion and not hers. And <clears throat> so I knew that I had to get rid of this child, that I couldn't go on the uh, path that I seemed to be headed for uh, with the child. So <clears throat> I had to find a way to get rid of this child. I took her to school the first day uh, in Little Rock, and... This was right on the tail end of all of the integration controversy. If you remember, they called in the National Guard, and and people were still a little sensitive about that whole deal. And I didn't really have any uh, problems with it one way or the other, but a lot of folks did, and and some of those were included my family. And I knew that when I walked in there that day and saw that my daughter had a black teacher, that I knew I, that I had exactly the excuse that I needed, and that's for exactly what it was. And I called up my sister that night and told her that I'd taken Angie to school and she had a black teacher. She said, well, we can't have that. You just bring her on down here and I'll put her in school down here. And so that's that was music to my ears, exactly what I wanted to hear, and that's exactly what I did. Well, that left me with this uh, albatross of a husband hanging around my neck and I had to find a way to get rid of him. So... um I provoked him a little bit. He slapped me around a little, and I had perfect justification for a divorce. And that's just exactly what I did. I got a divorce, and I was on my way. And I'm here to tell you uh, that I set out on a career of trying to stuff things in the hole in my gut to get peace of mind and serenity in my life, and I couldn't find it. And I used everything known to woman, uh, with one exception, that was drugs. They were not prevalent in my day, at least that I know of. Um, But I tried men, clothes, cars, jobs, geographical changes, anything that would bring about uh, the peace that I so much wanted in my life and could not find. In 1975, I ended up in Forest City, Arkansas, which is about 40 miles out of Memphis. Um, I had quit yet another job. I had nowhere to go except back home, and I wasn't welcome there because I had brought disgrace upon my family by getting rid of my daughter, of course, and uh, getting a divorce that was just unheard of. Nobody had ever gotten a divorce in my family, and so I wasn't really welcome there, and I could go back to Little Rock. I probably had more enemies and friends there. Uh, I'd been in Dallas, Texas, and didn't really want to go back there. Uh, Oh, Memphis. There's Memphis. It's 45 miles away. And I've never been there except one time. I have to tell you about that because we want to get all egos in perspective. And uh, I'd gone there to see a national, I mean, a pro football game. It was an exhibition game that the Jets came down and played against the Patri- uh, Patriots, New England Patriots. Yes, he tells me. Um, anyway, I didn't go there to see my future husband. I went to see Joe Namath. And uh, <laughs> you'll hear all about that tonight. But anyway, it's the only time I'd ever been to Memphis, Tennessee, and I've been somewhat of a gambler all of my life with certain things, and I decided that Memphis was the place for me. I'd just go over there and start all over anew and see if I couldn't get this thing together and see if I couldn't find whatever it was I was looking for, and I had no idea what it was. I got there with barely enough money in my pocket to pay down on an apartment and turn the lights on, and I found one. and. The lady that managed those apartments was a little bitty short woman. her name was Shorty, and she was about this tall and i had didn't have a job didn't know anybody didn't know where to get a job, but didn't seem to bother me at the time and Every morning I'd make a pot of coffee and I'd take it down to the office and talk to shorty Now there was a reason for that. you see, Shorty had something I wanted I didn't know it at the time. But every time I walked in that office, Shorty always had a smile on her face. She had a beautiful glow on her face. And she told me about the God of her understanding. She also told me about all the sordid places she'd been in and all the things that had happened to her. And she'd been with some pretty greasy people, I'm here to tell you. And I was impressed with that, that this lady could have been where she was and now seemed to be so happy, so peaceful, and so serene, and I wanted what she had. One morning, after about three weeks of this daily routine, I went back to my apartment. It was a townhouse, and head upstairs, and it was a bathroom upstairs. And I went in that bathroom, shut the door, put my head down on the, put the lid down on the commode, and put my arms like this, and put my head down. And for the first time in my life, I prayed a sincere prayer to a God I didn't know or understand. And I said, God, I don't know what that lady's got that I ain't got, but whatever it is, I want some of it. And as I finished saying that prayer, it was like a bolt of lightning hit me in the top of my head and went all the way through my body. And today I can still feel it. It just electrified me. My fingers tingled, my toes tingled, and for the first time in my life the hole was gone and I felt love. I had never felt love like that before, but I knew that it was love. I wanted to share it with the whole world and I ran back down to the office and I told Shorty what had happened and she seemed to be impressed. She introduced me to some more people there in the complex that were about my age, and they were also single. And they invited me to go to church with them. Now, I grew up in a Southern Baptist, Southern, Southern, Southern Baptist church. (coughs) And today I do consider myself to be a recovering Baptist. (laughs) But the church these people took me to was totally different than anything I'd ever seen or been in in my entire life. Because they were Pentecostal. And you can't get much further from the right to the left than that in the world of religion. But there was two things that I thoroughly enjoyed about that church. And number one was their music. They had the most wonderful music. I was accustomed to that. And I loved it. And they let me be a part of their choir and play the tambourine. And I was just loving every minute of that. I just thought that was wonderful. And they also... Have had a God that I liked. Because it was a gimme God. Now you see that God I grew up with in that little Baptist country Baptist church down there was a get-you God. If you didn't do what you're supposed to do when you're supposed to do it like your mom and daddy told you to do it, God would get you. But their God seemed to be a God of whatever you needed, you asked for it in prayer, believing you was going to get it, and you get it. And I thought that was wonderful. One of the girls in the group that, that they had introduced me to, whose name was Patsy, and I do consider her to be my first spiritual sponsor. And Patsy took me by the hand, loved me unconditionally, and tried to help me all the way through this religious program that, that they were going to. And somewhere along the way, the group started to disband, this group of people, and they started pairing up and marrying and, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And I realized real quick I was going to be left out there standing alone. And I didn't like none of that. Uh, So I said to Patsy, well, you know, I think I'd like to get married. And she looked at me and she said, well, I don't know about that. God's going to clean you up first. And I didn't think that was very nice. But figuring that she knew more... She knew God better than I did, and she had a closer relationship with him than I did. I figured she was right and I better listen. So I did. I went on along and I tried to do all of the things right that I was supposed to do. I also wanted to be a member of that church. I wanted them to include me as a member. And I I expressed this to Patsy and she told me, well, we need to go see uh, the pastor whose name I don't even remember. And I said, okay. So I went to him and... And uh, told him of my wishes, and he said, uh, he looked at me and he said, Well, um, I tell you, young lady, he said, uh, if you want to be a member of this church, he said, you can only wear two pieces of jewelry, and one of them's a watch and the other's a wedding ring. And I said, But I'm not married. He says, Then you can wear a watch. Well,. I know you already figured out by looking at me what my attitude about that was. I am pure, flash, and trash. And there ain't no way I'm going to give it up. And so I'm out of here. So I did not become a member of their church. But that brought back some old, old feelings. Because you see, when I was a very small child, I wanted to get up in my daddy's lap one time. And as I started to do so, he pushed me away. And when I wanted to become a member of this church, they pushed me away. I wasn't good enough. I was rejected. That was my perception. I fail to tell you that the one bad memory of my childhood was of my father. I grew to hate my father. He was a hard-working man, worked two jobs so my mother wouldn't have to work. She could stay at home with us kids. But you see, my daddy never got the daddy part down right. I had three little girlfriends that lived down the road from me, and they had a daddy named Mr. John. And I would go to their house on Sunday after church or possibly through the week spend the night with them or something. I'd go every time my mama would let me. Because you see, when I walked in their door, Mr. John would grab me, pick me up, and twirl me around, and I felt like a fairy princess. He told me how pretty I was and that he loved me. And I thought that was wonderful, and it was. But the bad thing about it was is that when I went home, I expected my daddy to be just like that. My daddy was not an affectionate father. He wasn't abusive, but he wasn't affectionate. He was cold and he was distant. And I never felt like he loved me. And so when I came to this church, I thought I had found what I'd been looking for. But they rejected me. They said, no, you're not good enough. Unless you do this or you do that or you give up your jewelry, you're not good enough. And I guess it was stubbornness on my part, I don't know, but I wasn't going to give it up. And I didn't. So I went on about my way. I kept going to church there, but it was just never really the same for me anymore. Several years later or months, whatever it was, I brought up the subject of marriage again to Patsy. And she said, well, I'll tell you what you do. She said, you pray about it. You ask God to give you a husband. But when you pray, you pray specifically for the husband you want. Well, I still had too much pride. I wasn't going to tell her I didn't know what I wanted in a husband. But the pure fact was I didn't know what I wanted in a husband. You see, I didn't have a relationship with my father. I didn't have a brother. So what did I know? About what I wanted in a husband, I discarded the first one. I knew nothing, absolutely nothing. But rather than tell her that, some weeks later, I went back up to the uh, bathroom to my praying place, as I called it, got down on my knees and folded my arms again, and I asked God, I said, "God, I'll tell you what you do." You give me the husband that you think is right for me. And I'm going to tell you, I live to regret that prayer. (laughs) I had a job as a buyer for a company there that I still work for. And every day, of course you know most salesmen, at least back during that time, were men. Very few ladies came through my office, but there was a parade of men came through every day and every one of them was a potential husband candidate because I didn't go anywhere except to work and to church and, and uh, back home again. And so that was about the only place I was going to meet men, so I set up a reviewing stand <laughs> and a grading system. And uh, everyone that came through there was was potential husband candidate. And, you know, some of them were, eh, maybe, and others were, no, thank you, God. And some of them, well, I, I might could live with that God. And then one day, this beautiful man walked in. And girls, i got to tell you, the guys won't appreciate it, but you girls will. He was just gorgeous. He was tall, and he had shoulders about this wide, and he had a little bitty skinny waist and no butt at all. <laughs> But better than that on his hand he had on this beautiful ring that was just had all these diamonds in it and it was sparkly and flashy and and we got to talking and, and our backgrounds were so similar and I thought, My God, this is it. I know this is it and I got excited. Well, the next week, I still hadn't heard from him in a week, and I came up with some pretentious excuse that I needed to talk to him on a business matter, and I called his office in Mississippi, and they said, well, he's not here. I said, well, where is he? They said, he's on his honeymoon. (laughs) Lord, I was just devastated. You know, just absolutely devastated. And... But I decided, well, you know, that's life, and it must go on. So I go back to the reviewing stand and the grading system, and, and believe me, they just never never any of them measured up, and it never got any better. One year, approximately one year later, on May the 10th, 1983, this beautiful man called me again. And he asked me to uh, meet him after work for a drink. And um, no, I didn't ask him where his wife was. I didn't care. And <laughs> didn't ask him if she's gonna be there either. Uh, so I did meet him and, and I'm here to tell you that um I'd done some drinking in my life during all those escapades and trying to fill the hole in my gut. That was one of the things that I used was alcohol. <clears throat> but it never worked for me. And I'm sure that uh if if it had done for me what it did for some of you, that I would not be on the al portion of this program this morning, I would be on the alcoholic side because, you know, the behaviors, the character defects in my life, I don't find to be any different than those of most alcoholic women that I hear and that I talk to. So if you're wondering uh, if I'm in the wrong program, no, I'm not. I know today that I'm in the right program but I did go down there that night and meet him for a drink <clears throat> and and I got drunk and because um, you, you know the big book told me after I got here you know I heard you alcoholics uh, talk about the, your big book and and uh, in it it says you've got to be willing to go to any lengths and do what you got to do and that's exactly what I did I mean he wanted to sit there and drink and so I sit there and drank with him and uh, and. Uh, We both got drunk, and I took him home with me that night, and he hadn't left yet. (laughs) As a matter of fact, he's here today, and you'll get to hear his side of this story tonight, and I'd like to introduce you to Mr. Wonderful in my life, Larry G. It was downhill all the way from there. Well, the thing that I didn't realize, I done told you I didn't grow up with any drinking, there wasn't any drinking in my home, and I'd never seen my daddy take a drink of nothing except coffee, iced tea, and I really just never been around anything like this in my entire life. My God, that man could drink and drink and drink. He, he seemed to have an endless pit down there. And, and I got to be a little concerned about it only because of the things that always seemed to happen. I really didn't care if he drank, if he'd just be a little more sensible about it, for God's sakes. What I objected to was the, uh, the going to jail <laughs> and me having to get him out, for God's sake. Come up with the money to get him out of jail. I objected to wrecking the cars. I mean, you know, you don't even get one paid for, and he's done wrecked the thing again. And I objected to the fact that he just wouldn't pay the bills if he even bothered to go to work. And it got to be a problem. It got to be of concern to me. And so I tried talking to him about it, and he was the most agreeable. I don't think he really realized what he was doing to me. But I made him aware of it, (laughs) and I thought it would get better, and maybe it did for two hours. I don't remember. (laughs) And then he'd go back and do the same thing again, and I tried gently reminding him of his commitment and of his promises, and uh, that didn't work too much, so I decided that i better try new tactics. And so I raised my voice a bit, and I'm sure that it sounded to him much like a lecture. And he would almost lost his car, and being the good wife that I was, I ran down to the bank and rescued that car by putting it in my name, getting a loan in my name, and so that I could get insurance on it. Now, he didn't have a driver's license, but uh, I-, I felt that the car should have insurance on it. So I did that, and I thought, now I've got him. Now I've got him exactly where I want him. And so I go back home, and I say, okay, here's the deal. Now that car is in my name, and I've got the insurance on it, and if you want to drive it, you can't drink and drive. Oh, oh, no problem, no problem. (laughs) And do you know that he broke that promise? (laughs) And I began to see a pattern here. (laughs) And being the good wife that I was, I figured that I had to take stronger tactics because of what he was putting me through. And so I decided, well, here's what I'll do. Called up a friend of mine. I said, I'm going to be by there in a few minutes. I want you to be ready to go and you pull in behind me and follow me. She said, Where are we going? I said, It don't matter. Now, we had a routine at our house. I got up in the morning at 8 o'clock, or I didn't get up at 8 o'clock, but I went to work at 8 o'clock, worked all the two miles from there, and I would go to work and, um, Worry all day, wondering where he was, what he was doing, but I knew where he was. and I, Well, I really didn't know where he was all the time, but I knew what he was doing. But there was one thing I knew. If he wasn't home by 7 o'clock, there was trouble in camp. And one of three people going to call me after 7 if he wasn't home. That was going to be the jail, the hospital, or the morgue. Now, fortunately, the third one never called. The other two did. But I would get in I would go home, sit there and worry and fidget all day, you know, wondering about all this stuff and knowing about all this stuff. You know how all that stuff gets jumbled up in your head. And then I would go home, I would get in my recliner chair and I would sit there and I would twiddle my thumbs and I would worry is he gonna be here? And then if it got close to seven and he still wasn't home, I'd start praying. I'd say, Oh God, please, whatever you do, let him get home safely. Don't let him kill anybody. Don't let him kill himself. And sure enough, he'd rattle that door and in the back door, he'd come with his little Burger King sack in his hand, and, and he'd waltz through the kitchen and waltz right on by my chair and go over to the sofa to sit down, and and I would just be mad as a dickens. He's drunk again. I don't know why I expected anything any different, because he was always drunk when he came in. But, you know, it was because I wanted to. I wanted to believe that this time, this day, it was going to be different. But at any rate, one of those nights when he came home with his little Burger King sack in his hand, and he went over and sat down and on the sofa and ate his little Burger King and then passed out, I got his car keys. And away I went. And I went by my friend's house and honked the horn, and she pulled in behind me, and we took off to the other side of Memphis. Now that's a big town, and we hit his car. I hit his car. <laughs> now, if you asked me to go back to that that place today, and you told me there was a pot of gold over there, I couldn't find it to save my entire life. I have no idea how to get there. But anyway, I hit his car. The next morning, he got up and he said, "Where's my car?" And I said, "I don't." I said, "I hit it." And he said, uh, "Well, where is it?" I said, "I'm not going to tell you." And uh, he said, well, now, you know that today I've got this very important appointment and I, at 11 o'clock or whatever time, and I have got to have a car. I've got to pick up somebody, a sales manager or somebody at the airport. I've got to have my car. And he went on and on and on, and I, said, uh, I finally said, okay, here's the deal. If you want that car back, you have got to promise me that you will not drink and drive. You cannot drink when you're driving this car today. Do you understand that? Oh, I understand. And I promise you, I will not drink. And he did. And there is no telling how many times I pulled that same stunt over and over and over again, every time expecting it to work, and every time expecting the results to be different. That he would quit drinking because I asked him to. And it never worked. And I'm here to tell you that nothing I ever did worked. And there were many things I tried. And You know, your convention ain't long enough for me to go into all of the things that I tried to get this man to stop drinking. I want to tell you about the lighter side of it, though. He comes in, seven o'clock one night, almost seven with his little Burger King sack in his hand. And I don't care what you feed me, as long as you feed me, but don't you do it in no Burger King sack. Do you understand that? (laughs) The sight of one of them things still brings out the fight in me. Thank you for not stopping at Burger King yesterday, Bob. (laughs) And anyway, he walked in this one particular night, and I'd been to the beauty shop and got my hair cut that day, and it was somewhat shorter than it is today. And I just got it cut last week, so you know it's pretty short. And I didn't have a hat on either. And anyway, he walks in, and he comes to my chair, and he's, Turned around and he looked at me and he said, Well, I'll tell you one thing. If I'd have wanted to have been married to a goddamn man, I'd have married one.
1: <laughs>
0: and then he walks on over to the sofa and sits down and gets out his little Burger King, whatever it was. <laughs> he looks up at me and he says, And besides that, your clothes are ugly. Well, I'm here to tell you, he had an order, (laughs) said
1: Dad. the
0: very next day, I didn't worry about him. I had a resentment all day long, and I worked on it all day long. And when I got off from work, I didn't go home and sit there in that chair and worry about whether he's going to get home or not. I went to Goldsmiths, and that's a pretty big department store there, and I bought myself 500 (laughs) golds. put them on my charge card and it took me five years to pay for them, but by God, I got even. (laughs) Insanity. They told me when I got to this program, that's doing things over and over again, expecting different results. Doing the same thing over again. I think I heard Debbie talk about that this morning. But I got to the point to where I had a daily range of emotions ranging from rejection, anger, fear, loneliness, and many others. But on a daily basis, I would experience all of those. In August of 1985, the doctor told me that if I didn't find out what was the cause of the stress in my life that I would be dead in less than a year. And I, at this time, I had a gut full of ulcers, and I had psoriasis from my elbows to my wrists on both arms and in my hair, and it was the kind that was the runny, ooey, goozy kind of stuff, you know, that had a horrible stench to it, and every day I had to wash my hair and you know, put all the medication in it to try to get through another day at work. And I knew what the source of my stress was, but I didn't know what to do about it. I didn't know, I'd, as I told you, I'd tried everything, and, and I, I just didn't know what to do. But I, I was not honest uh, with my doctor in that I did not tell her what was going on in my home. I didn't tell her anything about uh, the alcoholism. And so she may have guessed it. In fact, I'm quite sure she did, but she never mentioned it to me because I was not open for discussion on the matter. And in, oh, I think it was uh, May of 1986, it was Memorial Day weekend, and I went down to my folks. And Larry and I were both supposed to go, but he didn't show up. And so when I got ready to leave, he wasn't there. And I remember throwing a few things in a suitcase on the side of my bed that Friday afternoon. And the next thing I remember was walking in my mother's front door that night at 9 o'clock. Now, it's about a two-hour and 15-minute drive to her house. I have no, absolutely no knowledge to this day of where I went, which way I went, what happened, if I stopped, if I talked to anybody. I don't know. have no idea. But when I later got to Al-Anon... Somebody told me that that possibly could have been an emotional blackout. And today I choose to think that that must have been what it was. But it scared me. It scared me bad enough that I knew I had to do something. And so I went to a friend of mine that I'd gone to high school with. I knew she'd lived with an alcoholic for 21 years. And she divorced him, but I thought maybe she might have the answers that I needed. So I went to see her the next day. She has a grocery store and she told me that when she closed the store she'd be home and for me to be there. And I was. She made a pot of coffee and we sat out at her kitchen table and talked. And for the, she was the first person that I had ever talked honestly to about where I was and what was happening to me. I told her everything. And she looked at me and she said, Peggy, I wish that I could offer you some hope but you look awful. Now, that's not the word she used, but I'm not going to use the profanity from the podium that she used. And she said, I wish I could offer you some hope, but I can't. The best thing for you to do is to get your stuff and get out of there. Well, now, I had been an independent woman for 16 years in between marriages and taking care of myself. Uh, And in the process, I did get my daughter back. Uh, took care of her for four years after I got her back. And, you know, I had provided a home and had a home. And, you know, I, it just never occurred to me during all of this drinking episodes that uh, I could leave. It just never occurred to me. Now, don't ask me why. I, do. I can't tell you why. Because I'd always been independent. I'd always taken care of myself. But when she told me that, It was like somebody just rolled them boulders off of my shoulders. And I thought, yeah, I can leave. But I can't let him know I can leave because, you see, this alcoholic that I lived with had a silver tongue in his mouth. He could always talk me out of or into anything he wanted. It didn't matter what it was. And I'm not so sure he couldn't do it today. I'd like to think I'm a little shrewder and a little smarter, but you know I don't know. But I knew that if I let him know what I was going to do, he'd talk me out of it. And I knew for my own life, my physical life we're talking about, I had to do it. I had to get away from him. Because the doctor had already told me I was dying, and I knew she was right. So... I looked up at the clock. I was going back home, and I knew my parents would be home uh, at a certain time because they'd gone for the day, and I wanted to be sure I was there when they got there. And I looked up at the clock, sensing this great relief and feeling all of the weight off of my shoulders. I looked up, and it was 7 o'clock. And so I left and went home the next day. I, I started with my mother and went all the way through my family. It took me all day long, but I went to each one of them and told them, what was going on with with me? What was going on in our home, and that I was going to leave? I have an aunt that I'm very, very fond of in California, in San Francisco, and and that's where I was going because she had always told me if I ever needed money, if I ever needed to, um, anywhere to go, that she was there for me, and I knew that she was, and I was going to her, and they, my. All of my folks were supportive, I guess you could say, in that they said to me, You do what you have to do. And so I left, going back to Memphis, Tennessee. It was raining. And I cried every step of the way. But I want to tell you that was a soul-cleansing cry. And I realized today that God did for me that weekend what I was not able to do for myself. Because, you see, when I walked in the door that night at home, Larry was there. His car wasn't there. That wasn't unusual. But when I went to the door, he opened the door for me, and I said, where's your car? And he said, well, we've got to talk about that. And that, once again, that piercing, gut-wrenching fear knotted up my stomach one more time because I knew whatever he had to tell me, it wasn't good. He later told me that evening that he thought he needed some help. And I knew what he was trying to say, find somebody to help me. Because, you see, I'd always been the person that had been there to try to fix whatever the situation was. It didn't matter if he wrote hot checks and couldn't pick them up, I was there to pick them up. If he couldn't pay the bills, I did pay the bills. You know, whatever the situation was, I was always the one that put it back...